This is AQR's The Curious Investor, a show that breaks down some of the most important ideas in finance to help us make better investment decisions. I'm Gabe Figali. And I'm Dan Villalon. Today, we're talking about risk. There are lots of risks in every investment, but we want to talk about three specific kinds that investors ask us about all the time. Those three are home bias, market timing, and inflation. And we've brought along three AQR all-stars to talk through how to manage them. For home bias, someone who's done a lot of work on equity drawdowns. I am Roni Israelov. I am a principal at AQR. I oversee our volatility strategies, and I focus a lot of attention on research that is associated with risk. On market timing, we have a thought leader in asset allocation and expected returns. I'm Antti Elmanen. I'm a principal at AQR. And last, we have a researcher who thinks a lot about inflation and its relationship to the stock market. Hey, my name is Ashwin Thopper. I'm a macro portfolio manager at AQR. We'll cover how these risks can affect a portfolio, and we'll highlight some pretty big misconceptions about equity markets. People may disagree on what risk means, but generally, risk is about how likely it is that you end up with a bad outcome over whatever investment horizon you care about. And diversification is one of the oldest ways to deal with risk, but it's still controversial. Don't put all your eggs in one basket is pretty intuitive. But many critics say, yeah, good idea in theory, but in practice, eh, not so much. Roni Israelov, along with Cliff Asnes and John Liu, wrote a paper that tries to settle this debate. In it, Roni says a lot of investors do put their eggs in one basket because of something called home bias. I think of home bias as the tendency to invest more of your wealth in something in which you're more comfortable. And there are multiple ways that this can take place. So you can have a U.S. investor that is over-invested in the U.S. versus the world portfolio. And similarly, you can have a, a Japanese investor who's um, overly concentrated in, in their local portfolio. Roni's hit on an important idea that underlies home bias. People confuse risk with familiarity. The gist is basically that if something is familiar to you, you perceive it as less risky. It's not, of course. You could play the lottery over and over and it may feel less risky because you're familiar with it, but the odds haven't changed. Back to portfolios, if you're a U.S.-based investor, you might say to yourself, hey, home bias has worked out pretty well over the past few decades. Sticking to U.S. stocks might just be the low-risk way to go. But that's only looking at it from the U.S. investor point of view. What about the other investors, right? I mean, we can look backwards and say that the U.S. has outperformed, but there's nothing to say that that's what it's going to look like going forward. And, and we should look at this from the point of view of investors around the world. What Roni and his co-authors wanted to figure out was whether the risks of holding a totally home-biased or local portfolio were different than those in a globally diversified one. So they made a whole bunch of sample portfolios to test their hypothesis. We construct in our paper 22 different global portfolios and 22 different local portfolios. So we have, from the point of view of 22 different countries, um, a comparison of local uh, performance against a globally diversified portfolio. So a lot of eggs in a lot of baskets. And what he found was diversification actually didn't work that well. After the global financial crisis, after the tech collapse, you know, markets are, are suffering and they're suffering everywhere. And 
when you look at a globally diversified portfolio, it lost money just as much, maybe sometimes more, um, than, than a local portfolio. So game over for diversification? If diversification doesn't save you, maybe home bias is a risk that's actually worth taking. Uh, not exactly. Roni's paper is titled, International Diversification Works Eventually. And that last word, eventually, is key. Short-term crashes are a risk, but they're not the biggest risk investors face. Well, the longer ones matter more. The, the one-month events, they can be big and they can be uncomfortable. You see months where, where equities are down 20 to 30 percent. It's not enjoyable. But over longer horizons, you can see portfolios down 50 percent, 60 percent, 70 percent. That's much more damaging to wealth. And this is where things start looking pretty good for diversification. It turns out, in these longer, more painful periods, those global portfolios did hold up better than the local ones, and sometimes by a lot. Roni's paper shows that even over 10-year periods, a single country's equity market can perform pretty badly. And we're not talking about tiny frontier markets here. What can happen is you can end up investing in a Japan in the 1990s in which it significantly underperformed the world portfolio. Now, it would be hard to know in advance which country is going to look like that. So at the time, it was a surprise that Japan underperformed in such a way. But it's not a surprise that a country underperformed in such a way. And if you hold a concentrated portfolio in a single country, then you're taking the risk that you end up with a country that significantly underperforms its peers. The paper argues that regardless of what your equity portfolio looks like, you're going to be exposed to short-term crashes. But in the long run, you face an important choice. Do you pick which country's stock market is going to underperform, or do you diversify? It's always going to be the case that one country is going to outperform and another country is going to underperform. And if you hold a concentrated portfolio, you might get lucky and get the outperforming country. You might get unlucky and, and, and be concentrated in the underperforming country. Why take that risk? And for Roni, that gets to the very point of diversification. It's not about converting uh, a negative return into a positive return. It's about reducing the variability or the risk associated with uh, returns in general. Equity investors have to bear risk. And sometimes that risk means losses that are unusually severe. These losses are often called tail risk. And they just come with a territory. You have to be exposed to the tail risk, but you don't have to be exposed to concentrated tail risk. You can diversify some of the risk associated with that, but you're not going to get rid of it. And that's essentially what we found and, and confirmed in, in our research in this paper. And that's what we continue to find in research in, in other areas. A big part of risk for any investor is the potential for large losses. Roni argues that diversification works because you don't know where losses could come from and you don't know how long they'll last. So many investors try to deal with this risk through market timing. And one way to time the markets is by having a value bias. Auntie Ilmanen, the head of AQR's Portfolio Solutions Group, says there are lots of contrarian-minded investors who do this. They look at data that measures the cheapness of stock markets, like the Schiller price-to-earnings ratio. What they tell is a very intuitive story. They show that if today's Schiller PE is high, as it really is today, then you should predict low future returns. 
And if today's Schiller PE is low, you have got cheap markets, then you should predict higher returns for the next five to 10 years. In a paper titled Market Timing, Sin a Little, Antti and his co-authors Cliff Asnes and Tom Maloney looked to see if that notion holds up in the data. And they actually found that it does. Using more than 100 years of U.S. stock market returns, they found that when the market was cheap, the next 10 years' returns tended to be high. And when the stock market was expensive, subsequent returns tended to be low. People use data like this to justify market timing. But it's hindsight bias, right? If you know ahead of time when the biggest peaks and troughs were through history, you can make any strategy look good. So Antti and his co-authors made a more realistic and testable market timing strategy. And here's the key difference. Instead of having all hundred years of history, Antti's strategy used only the information that was available at the time. So say, for example, it's 1996, early tech bubble. We know after the fact that the U.S. stock market would get even more expensive for a few years before it crashed. But in 1996, you wouldn't actually know that. So by doing their study this way, Antti could get a more realistic test of value-based market timing. The interesting and troubling result was then that when we did this market timing analysis, the bottom line was very disappointing. I mean, it, it, it was not just underwhelming. It basically showed that in the last 50, 60 years, in our lifetimes, you didn't make any money using this information. This is a pretty big conundrum. On one hand, there seems to be compelling evidence that buying when markets are cheap and selling when markets are expensive works. But if you actually go back in time and try to test that strategy, it seems to fail. There is this kind of hindsight that people have. They think about, oh, I would have sold in 99 and bought in 02, sold 07, bought 09. No, you wouldn't have. <laughs> uh, there's, there's the old Will Rogers quip, something like, buy stocks and hold them until they go up. If they don't go up, don't buy. <laughs> and that type of, that type of hindsighted <laughs> illusion, I think, sort of motivates many market timing activities. This hindsight bias goes a long way toward explaining why it's so hard to time markets. With hindsight, we know when the market topped out historically, but we don't know when the next top will be. Even if markets are expensive today, that's no guarantee they can't get even more expensive tomorrow. But Antti and his co-authors do find something that might help, combining contrarian market timing with a little bit of trend following. Markets do tend to trend, and it's first a empirical statement. Our colleagues have several papers, but they study dozens and dozens and dozens of different asset classes or, or markets, and they find in this almost without exception that following last 3 to 12 months trend has been a helpful strategy. Trend following is almost the direct opposite of value timing. Value is bullish when things are beaten up, and trend is bullish when things are getting better. And like many ideas we've talked about on this show, the combination of these different factors can look better than any one of them individually. So maybe there's some glimmer of hope for market timers, but that still doesn't mean it's a risk that's particularly well-rewarded. People may be tempted to time the market, but over the years, they usually get burned. Most of us think about it, but then 
When we try, we find it so difficult. It is a pretty unforgiving trade. There's this old saying that, well, you can't see old, bold market timers. And that's pretty much the evidence that we see when we look, look at the track records of various investors. And the evidence suggests maybe young investors, really all investors, should think twice about market timing. There are many other risks in investing that seem to be better compensated. The last big risk we're going to talk about today is inflation. In fact, inflation may be one of the biggest risks facing your portfolio. It's common knowledge that bonds don't do well when inflation goes up. But many investors believe that stocks are a hedge against inflation risk. So let's look at the evidence and get some economic intuition. At its core, inflation just means that the costs of things you're buying are going up over time. So if inflation is at 2%, it means that prices of things are going up by 2% per year. This is the level of inflation. And for investors, the level doesn't necessarily matter all that much. Because at least in theory, the level of inflation should already be reflected in today's asset prices. Instead, the focus should be more on changes in inflation and inflation surprises. And asset classes that tend to track these are called real assets. Think of things like gold or real estate. They tend to move up and down with inflation. Ashwin Thopper manages macro portfolios at AQR, and he explains why many investors think that stocks might be real assets. Unlike the fixed income world, generally speaking, for companies, things are not fixed. That's good. That's good as an investor because there's some hope that whatever inflation is, the cash flows of the company and therefore the cash flows that ultimately go through to the investor will vary with it. So let's say we're investing in a car producer. If the price of the cars that that producer makes go up one for one with inflation, then perhaps its revenues go up one for one with inflation and the cash flows generally keep up with inflation. I think that's the intuition that has led investors to generally think of stocks as real assets. So that's the expectation. Companies can sort of bypass inflation by raising prices themselves. But in practice, it's just not how things shake out for the broad equity market. An empirical look at this question actually suggests, uh, surprisingly, perhaps to some, that stocks are not real assets. And what I mean by that is, in meaningful inflation shocks, stock returns have been poor in real terms. Or in other words, stocks have not been a real asset. There are several things that might explain this. One is if the inflation shock contributes to greater risk and greater risk aversion. That could push stock prices down. Another explanation could be cash flows. Companies might not be able to raise the prices of their products fast enough to match changes in inflation. And this is a problem for traditional investors. Take the 60-40 stock bond portfolio. Investors often think of bonds as a good diversifier to stocks because when growth disappoints and stocks do poorly, there's a decent chance that bonds might do well. But neither asset class seems to bail out the other when it comes to inflation surprises. So in that sense, inflation can often be one of the biggest risk exposures of the overall portfolio in terms of the fact that no piece of that portfolio is necessarily going to provide good protection in that environment. That said, within the stock market, some industries seem to do a bit better than others. For example, mining or forestry stocks. But that still doesn't mean they necessarily go up 
during inflationary periods. Some other asset classes have done better in inflationary environments, like the currencies of emerging markets or commodities. But in these environments, stocks in aggregate haven't behaved like real assets. So if you're looking to address inflation risk, you might have to look beyond just stocks. Today, we covered three things about risk. One, international diversification. It works, but eventually. It won't save you from a crash, but it can help you over time horizons where wealth can really grow or really become impaired. Two, stock market timing. You probably shouldn't do much of it. It tends to work out worse than you'd expect. And three, stocks and inflation. Stock markets in aggregate aren't going to save you from inflation risk. Some assets are decent inflation hedges, but stocks overall do not count as a real asset. And for folks who want to dive deeper into the topics covered today, head over to our website at aqr.com curious. You can also take a risk by sending an email to curious at aqr.com. Next time, we get into ESG. What is responsible investing? And what does it mean for returns? Joining us will be an AQR portfolio manager, a Harvard professor, and the head of the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investing. And investment managers have then realized that if I am going to get a mandate from some of these very large pension funds, I'm going to need to have ESG product. I'm going to need to have responsible investment capabilities. Thanks for listening to The Curious Investor. I'm Dan Villalon. And I'm Gabe Fagali. See you next time, folks. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of AQR itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice, and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. AQR does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of AQR as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including any direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, AQR Capital Management, LLC. All rights reserved. I have friends that are invested. They have all their money in one stock, and that's what they believe in. They're like, that's the only way that you can actually, like diversification is a dampener and a waste of your money. When you say it reduces your upside volatility, they just hear it reduces your upside. Right. I mean, I think they'll have a good story to tell one way or another in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs>